Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 44 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. Well, how is everyone? How are you holding up through these last few months of, well, chaos? <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about chaos the last few weeks. And I imagine that doesn't come as a surprise to anyone, as I'm sure most of you too are wondering how we have found ourselves living in these chaotic times. The impermanent, ever-changing nature of life, right? One day normalcy, the next this, just this, whatever this is. You know, a couple things added to my closer look into the concept of chaos the last couple of weeks, in addition to trying to find a stable place to stand in the middle of the upheavals of the global pandemic and the social unrest sparked by outrage over a series of police murders of black people, and a new wave of activism addressing continued systemic racism and its seeming seeming worsening during our current sociopolitical climate. You know, one of those things I shared with our Open Sangha last week, the one of the things that made me look deeper into chaos, and it was in my return to writing poetry. You know, I've journaled and written poetry since I was a kid, but there have frequently been, you know, long gaps between these being regular practices as life does was it life does what it does in uh, shaking things up and moving your attention to other things. But in the last few weeks, I felt a call or maybe a need to dump the jumbled contents of my mind onto paper or computer where I can look for a way to apply some order to the muddle and begin to see patterns and maybe just maybe make sense of my and all of our experiences. You know, it seems a natural instinct to try to find ways to create order in our lives as the roar of chaos continues to rumble around the world. During the first few weeks and months of the pandemic, there was this rush to bake and cook and organize our houses, as was pretty obvious on social media. And after sharing my personal return to writing poetry with my open sangha last week, another sangha member shared that his wife found that putting jigsaw puzzles together provided that meditative sense of finding order. Another piece to my personal exploration into the concept of chaos is that the mind muddle I was referring to earlier was made up of trying to make sense of the chaos in my outer world and in our external circumstances, but also trying to tame or at least understand the internal chaos I had been feeling, which was sparked by the disruption in the outer world. I'll try not to go too far down the rabbit hole of my personal struggles, but I thought it was appropriate to share some of it with you. In light of the current climate of heightened concern 
for the lives of our black and brown brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers, and for the lives of marginalized people everywhere, including the LGBTQ community in this Pride Month. Although I am not consciously aware of being marginalized as a gay woman in the life I live right now, my past is full of both active and veiled dismissal of the gay me I I identified with as a young preteen, teen, young and middle-aged adult. Now in my senior years, it seems very far away, yet also very close. There were many traumatic events connected to my struggle to be who I was while also struggling to fit in, to be accepted, to be loved. It was a very different time in the 1960s compared to today. Society at large associated any sexual identity or orientation outside of cisgender and heterosexual as deviant. In sociology, deviance describes an action or behavior that violates, now notice that word, violates social norms, either formally or informally, a behavior that does not conform but violates, as if it was purposeful, as if it was full of agency and self-direction. I realized this was a problem for me at a very young age. I realized that the me I knew I was was in violation, and therefore I needed to be hidden. I remember listening to talk radio on my transistor radio at night in bed. I remember one show very vividly. It was an interview with lesbians. I think it was like the Alan Douglas show in Cleveland, a radio talk show. I could be wrong about that, but that's my memory. The thing I remember the most, though, was learning about the Greek island of Lesbos and its mythical or not so mythical association with lesbians. Then and there, I decided that that would have to be my future home as an adult. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but I knew that I couldn't live here where I was a deviant. Since that time, I struggled with both being me and hiding me. Falling in love with my best friend and writing about that love and our sexual experimentation at 13, 14 years old in my diary hidden between my mattress and box springs It was that that initiated the first major trauma of my young gay life. Since homosexuality was considered deviant during the 1960s, parents were faced with a very different challenge when confronted with a child identifying as lesbian, gay, or transsexual than they are today. Back then, it would be natural for a parent to react in shock and fear and to try to work it out with other adults without any consultation with or consideration of the potential trauma that could cause that it could cause a young personality and that is in fact what my mother did she consulted with my friend's parents and i believe the school also and the proactive campaign of separation was launched 
we were not to associate with each other again. I imagine the thinking was that like, was that of uh, the harmful effects of drugs. You must separate your gay child from their temptations to save them from their deviant selves. I honestly understand that thinking from the perspective of what things were like in 1966. And I have come to accept what my mother did as coming from a place of love and protection for me. Yet that acceptance must have existed at a much shallower level than I was aware. That was just the first in a series of life-denying events surrounding my sexual identity. But I believe it was the deepest wound. Later, at 18, off to college with my best friend and my college roommate, the tension of my hidden sexual identity exploded. I communicated it and my love for my friend, thinking acceptance for me was a given, even though I knew the type of love I felt for her was not reciprocal by her. Again, a life-denying series of events of pretty major proportions were set in motion by that innocent confession. I was removed from our shared dorm room, relocated to a group room of jocks, put into therapy, and eventually drank, took drugs, mixed cla- missed classes, and ended up in a breakdown, a nervous breakdown of sorts. Leaving college, I was admitted to a psychiatric ward by my parents because of my depression, and I submitted because I didn't feel there was much life left in me. I was completely and utterly crushed. I had a therapist who was trying to change me, and because of little success in reversing my condition, plans were made for electroconvulsive or shock therapy as the next step. Thankfully, my parents did not sign the papers, and I was released from the hospital. It was a long and painful road from then on, with multiple rejections and dismissals of who I was by family members and friends, leading me to leave my parents' home and my hometown and move in with a woman who was a bad choice for me. Remember, this was happening soon after the time of the Stonewall Inn raid in 1969 in New York City. I also experienced those police raids of gay bars in dangerous sections of Cleveland, Ohio. I was poisoned in one, and I have haunting memories of rushing out of bars through back doors and weaving our way through alleys to make our way to the safety of our car and back to our suburban apartment. Now, of course, since then, everything was better. You know, I I found the love of my life, married her, well, stayed with her since... 1980, married her when it was legal in 2011, and the the things in our world changed. We became relatively accepted. You know, there's the, the pockets of haters and homophobes, and that will be that, but um, uh, the law, when it was on our side, protected us. I don't know where it is now or where it's going to end up, but it did protect us, and for that I am very grateful. So why am I sharing this meandering trip through my past? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm sharing it for a few reasons. Number one, I'm sharing it in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and for those who are standing up for Black Lives Matter in their names. Number two, to honor all those whose lives have been dismissed as less than or even harmful to others. Number three, 
in celebration of Pride Month, June, to honor all those who suffered just because they were who they are. Number four, to remind all of us that each one of us may be carrying around trauma that has been triggered by the psychological and sociopolitical effects raining down on us from the chaos in our inner and outer worlds. And we're all just trying to find a way to create some order, some peace, and live more gently. And last but not least, number five, to find that sort of order in a, in, a, in a Buddhist method or practice to the fear and anger so many are feeling as we continue to swirl around in this chaos. The events of the last few months triggered traumatic reactions to the past that has lived quietly inside me for many, many years. I had a brush with its reappearance in 2011 during the fight for marriage equality and because of other challenges in my life. But this time it seemed to go deeper and hurt more. Or maybe I looked it in the eye this time rather than repressing it, so I felt it more. The pandemic and a seemingly broad social dismissal of those over 60 or with compromised immune systems and underlying health conditions, all of which I have, triggered the resurgence of my past trauma in periodic bouts of depression, anger, and even rage, feeling again that somehow I didn't matter, that I was deviant, expendable. I fully feel the rage of the Black Lives Matter movement, I fully feel, in a completely embodied way, that fatigue in fighting for your inherent right to live your life and just be who you are. I do not pretend to totally understand, in that same embodied way, how it feels to have black skin and carry multi-generational trauma on your back. But in being triggered, I personally needed a way to accept the woundedness, the hurt, and the anger, full on, without repressing it. Repression causes anger. Opening to your own hurt is a compassionate response. It is the first verse in the meta vows and the first part of meta practice. The first verse, may I be happy and well. May no harm come to me. May I learn compassion. And for me, that's where poetry came in, to be happy and well, as a way to express my hurt, crying silently into the words until there was no more hurt and I could feel beyond myself. In the book, A Primer for Poets and Readers of Poetry, Gregory Orr, the author, writes, most of us know that based on our own experiences of adolescence, when emotions and events threatened to overwhelm us, even as time propelled us relentlessly toward biological and cultural adulthood. And many of us still turn to that sense of lyric in times of crisis. He goes on to say, I argue the writing of a lyric poem serves two basic functions. One is that it feels good to express what is in us, 
who hasn't at some point experienced the sense of being a separate person, isolated from others, and yet bursting with emotion. Lyric poets have always claimed that expressing emotion in words can heal, bringing a transformational sense of relief and release. Orr goes on to write that, quote, the writing of a poem helps to restabilize a self that has been destabilized by experience, unquote. He says that work that works by turning personal experience into words, then applying ordering principles, transforming the distress and confusion in the words to some sort of order. It is the ordering principles of poetry that holds words together so that they then can channel the chaotic inner and outer experience. And there it is, you see, order from chaos. Every life has some chaos, and today we are experiencing chaos on a greater scale than most of us living have ever experienced or nor ever imagined. Yet, on some level, we can find order. Gregory Orr states a simple fact, quote, that there is a great deal of disorder in experience, unquote. To me, that sounds a lot like the Buddha's first noble truth, that the unenlightened life is suffering. Or as I rephrased it in my book, life is crappy and sometimes we suffer. But Orr goes on to sound even more Buddhist. He writes, quote, understand that I use the word disorder as a conceptual term and isn't a moral category. Disorder is neither good nor bad, though it can be either or even both at the same time, unquote. And this leads to the second noble truth, that the cause of our suffering is craving, attachment, or grasping. And again, as I wrote in my book, about the second noble truth, quote, we suffer not necessarily because life is crappy, but because we cling to things being something other than they are. In this book about poetry, Gregory Orr continues in a very Buddhist way, referring to the vanished past and the unknowable new moment. In other words, the past and future. He writes, quote, in the ordinary, mildly chaotic world of daily life, we somehow manage to balance between disorder and order. We usually keep ourselves steady enough and moving forward more or less purposefully and responsibly through our day. But when something destabilizes us, it might well qualify as a crisis of self. And it is precisely to help us respond to such crises that culture invented lyric poetry, unquote. I think Nietzsche said something very similar in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I can never say that, Zarathustra. He said, quote, Who has no chaos inside him will never give birth to a dancing star, unquote. And all of this reminds me of the quote I shared from Chogum Trumpa in an earlier episode. Trumpa said, chaos is very good news. And he was referring to chaos as, quote, the openness where things fall apart 
and new creations arise. The space created by chaos provides an opportunity to reconnect with what lies under the chaos and negativity. And that's inherent awakened nature. When things seem very bad, there is an opportunity for something very good to take its place. Unquote. When we cling to or grasp to things, grasps to things as we would like them to be, rather than things as they are, as the second noble truth teaches, it's like clinging to old structures while the storms of life are tearing down everything familiar. But that's not what we need to do. We don't want to cling to the old structures. We need to face forward and lean into the change, lean into the pain, with what Roshi Joan Halifax refers to as strong back, soft front. The upheavals we are living through will take time to get to where they are going. And where that is, like Gregory Orr said, is the unknowable new moment. It's the future, and it's unknowable. Yet we need to find the trust. We need to find the faith that a new sense of order will emerge. Speaking more of chaos, in a fascinating tricycle article called The Heartbeat Sutra, Chaos Theory, Karma, and Other Fluctuations from a summer 1995 issue, the author of this article, Barbara Rother, shares an interesting look into the mind and work of Min Duong Van, who she refers to as Dr. Chaos. Min was born in a village in Vietnam, educated in France, then began his scientific career at Cornell, then moved to Stanford, then eventually to Lawrence Livermore Lab. His academic focus is on chaos theory, but specifically controlling chaos. In fact, his reputation rests with his experiments in controlling chaos in lasers and in implying, applying these ideas to heart defibrillation. Barbara Rother writes, quote, anyone who has ever approached the Tibetan practice or the Buddhist practice of shamatha meditation is familiar with the idea of controlling chaos. I think we can all agree. Our minds are chaos when we sit down to meditate. But we sit and watch them anyway. We don't freak out. We let them be chaos. They calm down eventually in an unknowable moment. But Barbara Rother continues, quote, in both Vajrayana Buddhism and chaos theory, the material at hand is used for transformation. Fierce deities are employed to dispel negativity, or irregular signals to the heart are used to cure irregular heartbeats. Both disciplines view systems as open and susceptible to change at any point. Both are about process rather than object. Chaos theory is referred to as a science of process. And Buddhist meditation is a practice in the process of change we all live through. Dr. Chaos, or Min, says, quote, This life is not a direct cause and effect equation. That would be a linear equation. 
That's why I like Buddhism, he says. It's nonlinear. Mathematicians hate nonlinear equations because they are so difficult to solve. Christianity is linear, deterministic. Science grew up in that mindset. But nonlinearity, now that's workable, unquote. And then Rother, too, goes on to, quote, Trungpa Rinpoche again. Quote, chaos has an order by virtue of which it isn't really chaos. But when there's no chaos, no confusion, there is luxury and comfort. Comfort and luxury lead you more into samsara, creating then more luxurious situations, which then add further to your collection of chaos. And all these luxurious conclusions come back on you, and you begin to question them, which leads you to the further understanding that, after all, this discomfort has order in it. And Dr. Chaos echoes that. He says, I think that the underlying fluctuation of the universe is lurking in the practice of meditation. When someone meditates very well, they can sense the underlying fluctuation of the universe, the pulsing of the matter, antimatter, that is the nature of things on a subatomic level. He further explains his version of emptiness, as in emptiness is form and form is emptiness from the Heart Sutra, as the, quote, vacuum fluctuation of matter. He says, quote, the constant shifting between matter and antimatter that sets up a pattern of beating in every, little, every living cell. I'm working on the heart, so take the heart. There is no time in utero that a heart starts to beat. The cells are beating from the start. As cells multiply into what is to become the circulation system, they take their cues from the rhythm of the mother's heartbeat. So the mother's heart is the signal that tells the fetal heart how to beat, at what rate, and so on. You could ask yourself then, when did the mother's heart begin to beat? And you come to the same problem. If every cell was beating before it was a heart, then how could there be a single moment that it became a heart? The heart is a circulation system. It's a system that has no beginning and no end. This is something we are just beginning to understand. The reason artificial hearts have been largely unsuccessful is because the heart has been treated as a pump, a discrete organ. But in fact, I am finding that the aorta which leaves the heart also acts as a pump. And if you follow that further in biology, you see that the heart is actually all the veins and arteries attached to it. Unquote. All of this brings me to what I guess is the main point of this rambling opus, and that is that chaos is always as close to us as our habits, our order. We just don't see it. Everything is constantly fluctuating, sometimes too fast for us to see, and sometimes too far-reaching for us to get a grasp of. In chaos, we keep searching for the order, for the truth, for the reason of it all. And maybe it's that in what seems like chaos, 
there is a new heartbeat that we can't quite hear or see yet, yet it will come in that unknowable new moment. But until then, we have to keep going, keep meditating, and lean in to what seems like chaos, but could be the birth of a new order. Lean in with a strong back and soft front. May it be so. That's it for this episode. And as a reminder, don't forget that there are many ways to join me and others in either our private, donation-supported, everyday sangha that meets every other week virtually uh, through Zoom on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time or our new free public open sangha every week alternating from Tuesday afternoons at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time with me, Wendy Shinyo, and then Wednesday evenings at 7.30 p.m. with Levi Shinyo-sensei. So until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and all others' days better. <music>